Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. For most people, their greatest expense is housing. If you're a millennial, it's probably avocado toast, but right after that, housing. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans spend almost 40% of their take-home pay on shelter. This might lead you to ask, why aren't home prices included in measures of inflation? And should they be? Inflation, as I'm sure you know, is a measurement of changes in the overall price level of goods and services throughout the economy. It's measured by comparing the current prices of a representative basket of goods and services to their previous prices. That so far sounds pretty simple, but it turns out to be a bit more complicated than you might expect. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, is the most widely used measure of inflation. It's designed to measure price changes faced by urban consumers and is representative of the inflation experienced by 93% of the US population. It's an average, though, and doesn't necessarily reflect your specific experience. We'll come back to this idea near the end of the podcast, and we'll discuss how your experience of inflation might differ significantly from the CPI. Now, we've seen huge government stimulus over the last year and a half relating to the global pandemic, and this has brought about the broadest global house price boom in over 20 years, according to the Financial Times. It's also pushed up all sorts of other asset prices, things like stocks, bonds, classic cars, cryptocurrencies, even blue chip stocks like AMC and GameStop. A lot of commentators are arguing that there's way more inflation occurring than shows up in the CPI. You just need to take asset price inflation into account. They argue that if central banks have a mandate to maintain price stability, shouldn't home prices and the stock market be included in their measures of inflation? The government of New Zealand might even agree with this idea. Six months ago, New Zealand's government formally instructed their central bank to consider housing prices in making monetary policy decisions. We'll discuss what this means in just a moment. But first up, why are home prices and other financial prices excluded from inflation calculations? Well, they weren't always. Up until 1983 in the United States, the CPI actually included home prices. The index was changed because inflation is supposed to be a measure of the cost of buying goods and services for consumption today. While a home might be your largest purchase, it's an asset that's not entirely consumed like other purchases. So buying a house is a mix of investment and consumption. Other investments like stocks and bonds and gold are excluded for the same reason. They're not consumption assets. Now, you might argue that things like cars and refrigerators that yield services over several years are included in the inflation basket. And this is true, but the big difference is that these items depreciate much more quickly than houses do, and thus the difference between the value of the services consumed and the price paid is much less extreme. 
It could be argued that if you did no repairs to a house, that it would lose much of its value over time. This too is true, and for this reason the cost of home maintenance finds its way into most calculations of inflation globally. So is the price of housing completely ignored in inflation figures? No, in fact it's one of the most important costs that go into the calculation. Shelter costs account for around a third of the overall CPI. But instead of the cost of buying a home, the change in rental equivalence goes into the calculation. How it works is that the BLS looks at your home, they try to estimate how much you'd have to pay to rent it, and then they count changes in that amount in the inflation numbers. This rental equivalence method was adopted by the UK too starting in 2017. The way they see it, housing is a service and almost everyone is purchasing that service from a landlord. If you own your own home, they view you as being your own landlord. Now, in a country where most people are renters, this might appear to make even more sense. But 65% of Americans own their own homes and 63% of British people do too. So does it make sense that one of the main items in the consumer price index is rent, a price that most people don't really pay? Well, the Bureau for Labor Statistics argues that this rental cost is a much better estimate of the consumption portion of housing services, even though rent pricing trends often differ significantly from house pricing trends. The idea is that when house prices go up, if this increase is permanent, it should feed into inflation since rent should also go up. But in situations where house prices go up a lot more than rents do, then only the rental cost should be counted in inflation. This is because the extra house price increase, the bit that's unrelated to rent increases, is more of a financial asset gain. It's not linked to the ongoing cost of getting to live indoors. When people pay more for a house than might make sense based upon the rent it would generate, they're speculating that rents will increase in the future. The actual cost of living in the house has not changed, but the cost of a real estate investment has. If you think about why we care about inflation at all, you can see why the BLS counts rent equivalents rather than home sales prices in inflation. This isn't just an American and British thing either. Rent equivalence is the most common method used to measure changes in the cost of shelter globally. 13 out of 30 OECD nations use this method. The next most common method is for a nation to entirely omit shelter from the CPI calculation. Now the European Central Bank does not use this method. They prefer a net acquisitions method, which aims to measure the changing price of purchasing homes, but not the land on which the homes are built. It's worth noting that they are struggling with how to break house price changes down into the physical structure and the land value. In Sweden, the central bank includes actual mortgage payments in their inflation calculation. Mortgage payments, of course, relate directly to interest rates, and this means that hiking interest rates in order to reduce inflation will actually cause inflation when you use a measure that's constructed this way. The main tool that central banks have 
for dampening inflation is adjusting interest rates, and the investment portion of housing prices is extremely interest rate sensitive. Okay, so does the fact that asset prices are included from inflation calculations mean that the central bankers don't care about how their policy changes will affect house prices and stock prices? Absolutely not. It just means that they don't consider these price changes inflation. Central banks do fairly obviously care about asset prices and they pay attention to them. As you can see over the last year, central banks have been working overtime to stabilize asset prices, which include stocks, bonds and real estate. You can in fact make a good argument that they should pay less attention to these prices. So they do pay attention to these price changes, they just don't classify increases in these asset prices as inflation because these items relate to savings and not day-to-day -day consumption expenses. Ben Bernanke has argued in the past that changes in asset prices should only affect monetary policy to the extent that these price changes affect the central bank's forecast of inflation. It's not the role of a central bank to decide the fair value of a house or of a share of Tesla. These things only become a concern to them when sustained price rises could become inflationary. Eric Rosengren, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, told the Financial Times last June that it's very important for us to get back to our 2% inflation target, but the goal is for that to be sustainable. In order for that to be sustainable, he said that we can't have a boom and bust cycle in something like real estate. He finished by saying that it's worth paying close attention to what's happening in the housing market. Okay, so enough with the theory and explanations. We need to ask some hard questions. Did the BLS in the United States and later the ONS in the UK adopt the rental equivalence method simply to lower the measured rate of inflation? Well, in the United States, when the rental equivalence was first introduced back in 1983, it actually increased the reported rate of inflation. According to the National Association of Realtors, between 1983 and 2007, the monthly principal and interest payment required to purchase a home in the United States rose by 79%, much less than the rental equivalence increase of 140% over that same period. Looking at UK data, you can see that different approaches produce differing results. The net acquisitions method, the one that's favoured by the ECB, shows the greatest increase in housing costs, and the out-of-pocket payments approach, which takes both house prices and mortgage interest rates into account to determine the monthly cash payments associated with home ownership, will have experienced the lowest inflation. Rental equivalence sits in the middle of those two. Now that out-of-pocket expenses approach which the UK, interestingly enough, used to use to calculate the now-defunct retail price index, would have actually reduced inflation over the 15-year period, because interest rate cuts since the financial crisis have brought mortgage costs to historic lows. Okay, so the next hard question is, should central banking mandates change? Should the rest of the world follow New Zealand's example and require central banks to assess the effects of their monetary policy decisions 
on the government's objective of supporting more sustainable house prices. Well, the Central Bank of New Zealand, after having their mandate changed, went on to define sustainable house prices as being house prices that are not obviously in a bubble. They argued then that structural factors in New Zealand, things like urban planning rules, land use restrictions, population growth, and the current low interest rates mostly explain high house prices, and thus no intervention is necessary. When you look at New Zealand house prices, you can see that they've hugely outpaced inflation over the last 25 years, but it's worth noting that interest rates in New Zealand were around 10% in 1995 and are around a quarter of a percent today. Falling interest rates can be expected to push up real estate prices. Basically, the idea is that the less a buyer spends on mortgage interest, the more that they can afford to pay for a house. So, of course, when interest rates come down, you're spending less on interest and you have more money available to buy a house. And so that's really what has happened, or at least it's one of the things that's happened in New Zealand. Now, other governments that are seeking a quick fix to the problem of rising housing costs are essentially facing this same dilemma. Pushing up interest rates in order to control house prices risks fueling unemployment and depressing living standards, thereby undermining financial stability. So governments and central banks will most likely continue to worry about affordability, but with very limited ability to tackle it. Finally, let's discuss the rather interesting issue of inflation inequality, or why your experience of inflation might be different to what's measured by the CPI. The CPI is specifically designed to reflect the spending patterns of urban consumers, urban wage earners, and clerical workers. So if you live in a rural or suburban area, work on a farm, are in the armed forces, or are in prison or a mental institution, according to the BLS, your experienced cost of living changes may be quite different to that which is measured by the CPI. Most of the differences in experienced inflation can be traced to changes in the relative prices of education, healthcare, and gasoline. The elderly will have experienced higher inflation than average, mostly due to their higher healthcare expenditures. Young people, or those paying university fees in the United States, will have experienced higher than average inflation as US university fee increases have far outpaced inflation. Low-income households and non-urban households tend to be more sensitive to fluctuations in fuel prices, as this expense makes up a larger proportion of their expenditures than is reflected in the CPI. Over the last year, there's been a trend of people moving out of major cities to the suburbs or even to rural locations. And this is sort of part of the working from home thing that has happened due to the pandemic. And this has kept urban rents, which are included in the CPI, down. Suburban rents and home prices have been rising and these are not reflected in the CPI. So for that reason, over the last year, it's possible that the CPI has been understated just due to that trend. If you found this podcast useful, do subscribe to it. And equally, I'd love if you could, uh, you know, hit the star button or write a positive review. It makes a big difference for my listenership. 
See you guys later. I put up a new podcast every week and uh, talk to you then. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.